will please remain standing. Well, this morning we're going to read from two passages of Scripture. We're going to read from Genesis 17, verses 7 through 13. And then we're going to read from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Before I read from those two texts, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we come now to the preaching of the gospel, Lord, the opening up of your word that we might understand what we should believe and how we should live, we ask for your blessing upon it, upon us. Lord, we pray that the truth would be brought forth and made clear and understandable. And we pray for, Lord, statements and phrases. Lord, we pray for illustrations. Lord, we pray for the whole message that it would be used for your glory and for our edification. Lord, that our hearts, uh, that our minds would be filled with truth and our hearts would be directed, Lord, in obedience. Lord, we ask these things because we love you because we want to live for you, Lord, because we want to be the living sacrifices that you, is, you have called us to be. And so, Lord, as we hear the word, let us hear Christ. As we listen, oh God, may we hear the voice of our Lord and Savior drawing us near to him, clarifying, Lord, any misunderstandings, correcting our ignorance, and Lord, admonishing us, teaching us, instructing us, Lord, doing all of those things that a true mediator, our prophet and priest and king faithfully does. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin reading Genesis 17 at verse 7 here, now the word of God. And I will establish my covenant between you, between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is uh, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised, and thus my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. That ends Genesis 17. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 2. I want to read verse 37 and following. This is the word of the Lord. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, I certainly had a small struggle this morning on about how to approach this topic of baptism, particularly covenant baptism, in light of the joy we have watching the sign and seal placed on Hannah Ray, I thought with our congregation, with our young people, with those coming and visiting with us on a regular basis that are coming out of independent Baptist churches, whatnot, that it would be a good thing for us to remind ourselves of covenant baptism, what it is, why we do it, what does it look like. My struggle was not, not that, but I certainly can remember the days that I struggled with this myself. For the Lord was pleased to bring me to himself in a small Baptist congregation. And then in that congregation being introduced to the Reformed faith and begin to, to begin reading uh, the Puritans and other works that stimulated my thought and my heart to understand God's word better by understanding what a covenant is. That God deals with his people covenantally. And it was a a monumental, it was of monumental importance that I as a believer wrap my mind and heart around this idea of covenant and then address what that looks like and means to me as a father and a husband. What does it mean to a family? And I confess that my daughter, my first daughter, was almost two years old before we baptized her or had her baptized because of the struggle, the, the, uh, the, the attempt to understand these things because there were so many people that I loved and adored and respected on both sides of the argument. It was a very, very hard thing. I remember coming home on one occasion and explaining to my wife, I have figured it out. And she was happy to hear that. Because I would come the next day and go, I haven't figured it out. And she said, please, please figure this out. Help me understand it. Please, let's, let's get to the bottom of this. And... Um, and so what I, what I had to do, what I needed to do is the same thing that all of us have to do in any struggle, personal struggle. We have to go to the word of God 
And we have to let the word of God stand on its own. And whether or not we agree with people we dearly cherish and love, it's just not, you have to let that go. You truly have to let that go. And you have to rest yourself upon the scriptures. And this morning, what I would like to do is address covenant baptism in, in two in two ways, I'd like to deal with the mode of baptism, and then I would like to deal with the continuity of the means of grace in the calling of households in the New Testament, that there is a continuity, that there is a connection, that there is an, a, a, a symmetry between the Old and New Testament that God still maintains with his people and their children, and that's vital. That is vital for us understanding this. Now, for you long life Presbyterians out there, much of this may be rote for you and it may be something that you never had to struggle with or deal with because you just grew up in it and this was what you've always heard. But one thing that I have also recognized with even lifelong Presbyterians is they really can't defend it. It's not enough to just say, well, the Bible teaches this stuff. We really need to be able to point out a few things so that we can help others understand why we do what we do. That it's not simply a leftover Roman Catholic rite. And that's what many Baptists think. Many Baptists think that in the Reformation, we got rid of a lot of stuff, right? Reformed people got rid of a lot of stuff, but they really didn't know what to do with baptism, and so they just kept it. And I'm not making that up. That's in books, and that's among some of the arguments that I continue to have. You would think 2,000 years we would have sorted this out, and yet we still to this day engage in this topic. In fact, yesterday I attended a local conference of a Reformed Baptist church on eschatology. I thought I would go spend a couple hours there to fellowship with those brothers who just uh, hadn't seen them in a while, encourage them and be edified by some of the teaching. And lo and behold, as as the lectures um, progressed into the church, guess what? It, it, it began to just manifest the differences that we truly have in the way we see the church of the Old and New Testament and these ordinances such as baptism. Well, let's begin looking at the mode of baptism. And I want to begin recognizing that in this mode of baptism, it is simply, uh, it has been misguided, it's been a misdirected argument that the word baptize means to dip. That is, if you look up any any well-known lexicon, um, typically edited, published, through Baptist organizations, it's common to find the word dip in the word, as you look up the word, baptizo. But the word baptizo 
or baptismos, the noun in verb form, has nothing to do with a mode at all. It just means to wet. It has nothing to do with a, a function. So to, call, to say that the word means to dip is misleading. And we all know, or we all should know, that there is one infallible definition given to the word in any text we look up, and that's the context of Scripture. That is, the Scriptures determine the meaning of any particular word. And that is something that we're going to look at in a moment The word doesn't mean to dip. It simply is a neutral word. It means to wash. It means to wet. It doesn't mean anything else. It's how the word is used. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, 13, 19, and 21, as the writer of Hebrews talks about these baptisms of the Old Testament, he calls them washings. Washings. And we can even state that there is not one single reference, not one, found in the New Testament of anyone being immersed in water. Not one. In fact, what I want to do this morning in order to just bring edification to us all so that we understand that what we did here this morning was not just some human emotional right. That it is our attempt to what? Be obedient to the things revealed in Holy Scripture. That's our heart. That's our desire. That's what we want to do. We believe that Jesus is the king and head of the church and that he has dictated and he is guiding us on how we should function in the church. And so to do something like this is of great importance. Does it conform to his word? There are places in scripture that cannot mean immerse. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I've read one of them this morning out of Acts chapter 2. Notice what it says at the very end of that passage. Um, in, in chapter 2, it said in verse 41, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day, that is the day of the preaching, not several days, but on that day there were added about what? 3,000 souls to the church. Now, it's going to be hard-pressed to immerse 3,000 people in a small amount of time. That is, it's it's, it's illogical. It's not even reasonable to think that they showed up in certain clothes to hear the, 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 the coming of the Holy Spirit in flames and tongues of fire, uh, the witness and testimony, them hearing the gospel in their own languages, and Peter steps up and begins to preach. He says, these men are not drunk, but they are filled with the Spirit. He says, this is the fulfillment of, of Joel's prophecy, what you see and hear to this day. And he begins to preach, and he preached such a powerful sermon to them that the text tells us up in verse 37 that they were pierced to the heart. The Greek word means they were cut deep. That there was an efficacy to the preaching of the word. Christ, who was sitting at the right hand of God, had blessed the preaching of the gospel and he had moved upon them to be deeply grieved and filled with guilt 
Guilt for what? Well, for crucifying the Lord of glory. Now, these were Jewish men that had gathered in Jerusalem for the partaking of the Passover, one of those three visits that they were required to make journeys every year to Jerusalem. What is interesting in the passage of Scripture is that when Peter tells them to be baptized, they don't ask, what is that? They knew what it was. They had Old Testament baptisms, washings. Nor did they argue, well, we are the sons of Abraham. We have the circumcision. We have the sign of the covenant on us. We don't need any of that. They didn't even present that argument. What we are finding here is this seamless illustration of the continuity of the covenant of grace from the old administration now transferring to the new administration and the power of the Holy Spirit had descended upon them. They were cut to the heart. God had blessed the preaching of Peter and now he commands them to repent and be baptized. Repent and then Receive the sign and seal of your repentance. You're washing away of your what? Sin. That sacramental language, covenantal language. So there's no way. It's, in, it's, it's just improbable. I wouldn't say impossible, but I think for the sake of the integrity that we should display in handling the Word of God, it's just improbable that they showed up and they heard the sermon and then they were all immersed. It would take a large body of water. Uh, again, the clothes they had on in, in, a short, in a short amount of time. I'll leave you to think of other aspects of it as well. Turn to Acts chapter 8. I'm going to make these references, and we're going to move quickly through some of these. Acts 8, 26, and 39. This is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and he says, verse 26, says, then the angel of the Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord uh, spoke to Philip, saying, get up and go south of the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza, and this is a desert road. Now, that's important to the text, isn't it? Not a lot of water in the desert. And he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, more than likely a proselyte. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran up. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guide me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, and he was led up as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he does not open his mouth in humiliation. His judgment was taken away. He will relate uh, he will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this of himself or of someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and began from this scripture. He preached Jesus to him. 
He's preaching the gospel out of Isaiah. And then he went along the road and he came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Now, there's a lot in here to unpack, but I want to simply point out, number one, the text itself points us that it was in the desert. I don't think we have to at all uh, imagine anything other than it's arid, it's dry. There's just not a lot of water. The water that they did come upon was probably small in nature, a spring, some type of uh, spring that would bubble up. Uh, here and there and even if it had been uh, you know the fact that the people were drinking out of some of that water they probably wouldn't want you bathing in it and you have to consider that as well but it's easily to simply take the water from the spring and apply it to the person and we see that I mean notice the question that Philip asked or that, that Philip is asked well, here's water. Now, how did he know about the water? Well, it was, in, it was in Philip's sermon. Philip had obviously addressed baptism, repentance, what it is to follow Christ, what it is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and baptism being a part of that discipleship, that step, if you will, of having the mark of Christ placed upon you, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And Hannah Ray has it at the beginning of her life, not as an adult. And it is a little disingenuous for our Baptist brothers to say, well, we believe in believer's baptism. You, be, you are paedo-baptist. How many of you have ever been described as a paedo-baptist? In fact, they described me from the lectern as we do have our paedo-baptist brother here this morning, which I smiled and saluted. But that's how he introduced this as our paedo-baptist brother. But it's disingenuous. It conflates the problem. It, it doesn't make it clear. We also, beloved, you also are part of a church, if you are in a Presbyterian church, that believes in what? Believer's baptism. Amen. We believe that any person of decent dis age of discernment can come and profess the name of Christ and his faith in them or her faith in them and believe and be baptized. That's believer's baptism. If they happen to have a family, if they happen to have children, then those children are to come along with them. And that's really the doctrine here this morning that the visible church is made up of believers and their children. Look at chapter 9, verse 17. And this is one that, <laughs> this is one that I really scratched my head over uh, when I was a Baptist. Verse 17, and, and Ananias, Ananias, this was the one that Paul was, uh, uh, Paul was sent to Ananias. And he says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him, he said, on him said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming was sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. Now notice that last. And he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. What happened? He stood up and was baptized. Now that certainly seems to give an indication of what we've already been talking about in that there is in this baptism this idea of effusion or sprinkling or pouring which is the picture of Old Testament rites and washings which is the picture of the Spirit coming at Pentecost. What is the Spirit doing? The Spirit is being poured out onto God's people. The water resembling the work of the Spirit in our lives, the water being poured upon us, symbolic of the work of the Spirit where the Lord's Supper is that sign and seal of the work of Christ in us. Baptism is a sign and seal of the work of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration, the sanctification, the power that we have in our lives to overcome sin. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I do not have the power to overcome sin. We don't have the power to defeat lust, at least not on any consistent level or basis. We can make small incremental changes in our life, but we can never make the kind of changes that are pleasing to God and beneficial and edifying and eternally blessed by God other than that which is empowered by God himself, the Spirit. And that's what baptism signifies look at well let, let's let's not spend all our time there the point is beloved is that when we baptize we have direction from Holy Scripture, we have a commandment from Holy Scripture, Matthew 28, verse 16 and following, our Lord Jesus in commanding the church of what sacrament to do commands us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and disciple, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Let's look at Acts 16. Look at verse 32 and 33, and we'll look at Lydia here too. But this is the Philippian jailer. It says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, and they took them that hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his house. Now, in the Greek, and this is not in the English, there is a very important distinction that's made in the original language. And it is this. The Greek clearly states that he believed, singular, 
and they were baptized, plural. And that's an important distinction. Because the counter argument is, well, how do you know that all of these young people or children in the house didn't believe as well? Well, that's not what the text says. The text emphasizes his belief. And what do we see? We see the continuation of this covenant of grace and these promises handed down, not just to believers, but to their children, that God in his grace and mercy is calling not just individuals, but households to himself. Look at verse 14 of the same chapter. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she had heard, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon them. Now notice, she believed and they were baptized. Now notice, Lydia is the head of a household here. Here's a head of a household. She's not married. There's obviously some company in her household. Enough that Paul saw fit to do what? Covenant baptism. It wasn't just the believer's baptism. Yes, she's baptized on what? Profession of faith. And they are baptized by covenant, by the covenant of grace. Very important. Look at Matthew. Let's look at more of this effusion of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 3. And then we'll look at Acts 1.8. Matthew chapter 3. Look at verse 11. As for me, that's John the Baptist speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals, and I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then we turn to Acts 1. In verse 8, but you will receive Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. This is that promised blessing that our Lord in John 14 says, I go away, but I will send to you one like myself, a paraclete, one like me, to be your helper. In Acts chapter uh, 2 verse 33 says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. How was the Holy Spirit applied? The Holy Spirit is applied to the church, not the church to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls upon the church just as the water falls upon the head, so to speak. In the Pentecostal baptism, one said, the apostles were not dipped into the spirit or plunged into the spirit, but the spirit it was shed forth and poured out upon them. 
Acts, uh, Acts 11, verse 15, and as I begin to speak, this is Peter, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And that's that inclusion of the Gentiles. What's the argument? The same way God saved the Jews is the same way God is saving the Gentiles. That one true church, that one covenant of grace from the time of Noah or Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the apostles, one gospel, one people, one shepherd, one law, one church. Not two. It's interesting as people begin to talk about baptism, they talk about the church, they talk about the Jews and the Gentiles, they ultimately oftentimes come down to the Jews being the people of God and the Gentiles being the people of God. And that is so unbiblical. It cannot be supported scripturally. There's but one people of God. And there's always only been one people of God. And all of his people have been marked out by these signs and seals. Now, beloved, it is often a mistake to think and to make it, it, it's a mistake to think like the Pharisees, just because they were born to in Israel. They had this ethnicity that they could claim were Israelites, that they were somehow the people of God. Their ethnicity didn't make them people of God. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, how does John the Baptist address the Pharisees? You brood of vipers. That's not the children of Abraham. The children of Abraham have always been marked by faith, by believing the gospel, by repenting of their sins. The covenant of God is a spiritual covenant. Yes, with physical realities and promises, but it is a physical. It, let's, let's turn to Galatians 3. I'll make this point and then we'll make a few more and then. Oh, wow. Look at Galatians 3. Um, look at verse 11. All right, let's back up. Let's back up to verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even so... Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure 
that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Did you catch that? The scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, did you catch what he said? When God made a covenant with Abraham, which we read from at the opening of the sermon, what does Paul call that covenant? The gospel. Paul says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And Abraham believed God and it was a reckon to him as righteousness. He put his faith in God. He trusted him. He repented of his sins. And God gave him the sign and seal of that covenant after faith. And what Paul says is, do you not know that you who are of faith are the true sons of Abraham? Do you not know that? Not these ones who are ethnic Israel. You, you, you see, beloved, this is why we preach the gospel so earnestly and fervently in the visible church. The visible church has always been a mixed multitude. And you can be a member of Chalcedon Presbyterian Church or any other church, Baptist, Presbyterian, doesn't matter. And you can be admitted to all of these visible ordinances but that's not admittance to Christ. That admission to Christ comes only by faith. The repentance of sin, the, the, the genuine integrity of your heart to love him and to be his servant and to be his son and daughter and to serve him and to be a living sacrifice. You can be admitted to all of the externals of the visible church. And, and, Never, ever partake of the spiritual salvation that is truly offered in the gospel that you may hear every Sunday. That's why there's always a call to repent. There's a call to examination. There's a call for us to look at ourselves and examine ourselves and see, as Paul said to the Corinthians, see if we be in the faith. This is the environment. And what a blessing little Hannah Ray has is to have this sign and seal placed upon her and then grow up in all of these visible ordinances where she will hear the gospel all the days of her life being conformed and nurtured and admonished and encouraged to do what? Walk in the ways of the Lord and put her faith and trust in him. Do you not think that's a blessing? Do you not see that blessing? You see, so many people come and go to church and they're like, oh, I'm saved. And they see the church as an afterthought. But this is where the gospel's preached. The gospel was preached to Abraham. The gospel was preached in the wilderness. Read the book of Hebrews and the writer of Hebrews says, and they had the gospel preached to them, but they did not believe. And we can have access to all of these visible blessings to God and miss it like many have, Esau. 
Cain. There are Hophni and Phineas, sons of, uh, of Eli. We can have all of these blessings and miss it, brothers and sisters. And that's why you were encouraged this morning. And I encouraged myself to do what? Remember your baptism. Remember what it signifies. Remember what it means. Remember the symbol of the Holy Spirit coming and washing away. Is that true? Have you confessed your sins? Have you truly repented of your sins? Have you put your faith in Christ? Do you truly love him and desire him more than anything else? You think about the vows that were taken up here, promised to be an example. You know, I mean, baptism baptism services are convicting. Most of us here may have grown children. Mine are grown. And I wish I could go back every day and redo so many of my failures. But I can't, and you can't. We trust the Lord to keep covenant. We trust the Lord to bring about his promise to them and to us, right? The same thing I trust the Lord for in my own life, I trust the Lord for them. And still continue outwardly to be what? An encouragement. Why do we, why should we, why do we have to? Where's the commandment that parents must teach their children the ways of the Lord? What's found all the way back in the covenant of grace in in the Abrahamic covenant where he is commanded in, in chapter 18 to instruct his children, his descendants, Why? Because they belong to the Lord. They have his sign and seal on them. Hannah Ray was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whose mark is on her? Not her parents. Almighty God's. He It's his name she was baptized in. And the parents, brother, all of us have a duty to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord's commandments because they are his. As he sees fit to blossom their lives, as he sees fit to bring them up, as he sees fit to put his word upon their mouths and upon their hearts, as God sees fit for them at that time to give testimony to their faith in him and their love for him. And God claims these children as his own. Uh, A text of scripture that highlights this, Ezekiel chapter 16. The Lord is rebuking through the prophet Israel. And he says, moreover, verse 20, he says, moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Now, brothers and sisters, They are his children. 
Uh, you young people who are still dependents in the home, you are the Lord's. What does that mean? Well, it means as you obey your, your parents, as you obey your mom, as you obey your dad, you don't do so simply because they say so. That's part of it. You do so because you belong to the Lord. You belong to him. He's marked you out. You are his, and he takes that seriously. Verse 7 of Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee as in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and unto thy children after thee. I'm going to be your God and I'm going to be your children's God. That's the promise. Well, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Let's make a little, some application from the text itself. And be and wrap it up this morning. Now Peter's preaching the gospel. Who's he preaching the gospel to? He's preaching the gospel to these Israelites, to these Jews. And he commands them to repent and believe and be baptized. He says, Be baptized in the name of Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, for what? The forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter's language here is, is covenantal. It's, it's not a guarantee. Look, there's two extremes when it comes to the sacraments. There's that hyper-sacramental view that, that whenever you baptize someone, it regenerates them. That's wrong. And then there's the other extreme, that is, you know, baptismal regeneration. You just simply go through the act of baptism and you're good. You're done. That's an extreme view that's wrong. But then there's the other view that just says, well, they don't really do anything. It's just water. Uh, it's not a big deal. It's more symbolic. It's an encouragement to the church. It's really nothing more than that. We do it. Uh, you know, as, um, as, well, they're just empty signs and seals, so to speak. They don't, they don't, there's no efficacy to them. And that's wrong. Because it pleases the Lord, and it's right here in, lang in the language that Peter uses. He says, he says, be baptized in the, name of, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Notice he's equating baptism with what? The forgiveness of sins. As if it's, as if it's done. That's the importance of baptism. That is when the Lord blesses it, it is a true sign and seal of what? The washing of the Holy Spirit in your life, in your heart, in your mind. He washes you. His Spirit comes and he cleanses you and he takes away this guilt that you have of being an unbeliever and a rebel in the eyes of God. And they had felt this guilt it wasn't that, oh, the baptism is just going to be like a drug. It's going to numb you to this guilt you have. No, it's the washing away of your sins. 
It's simply more than this. It's covenantal. It's the blessing of Jesus Christ to you in your life. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not a guarantee that the baptism will, you will have the Holy Spirit. But yet in this sacramental language, beloved, what he is saying is this baptism is connected to the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think the church has always said one of the first steps of discipleship, particularly in an adult's life, is what? To profess the name of Jesus Christ and be baptized. Because it's no small matter that Jesus would bless it and that your life would reflect the symbol and the the sign and the seal of that baptism, that you would grow up in that, that you would be sanctified, and that baptism would truly reflect the reality of your heart, your mind, your life. So there's that. And then he goes on, he says, look, in verse 39, for the promise, the promise of what? The promise of this spirit, the the cleansing, the washing, the empowerment of the spirit is not simply for you and for your children. Now, again, in the Greek language, it's emphatically in in you and the children. It's emphatic. It's not simply for you, but like it was for Abraham in the one true church that continues from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it is for you and it is definitely still for your children and even those who are far off, the Gentiles who have yet to be brought into the church. That's the goal, that's the aim, that's the purpose. It was never to be a Jewish church. We have to remind ourselves historically that Abraham was not a Jew. He was made a Jew. He was called a Jew. God sanctified him as a Jew. He was a what? Gentile. He was a pagan. He was a worshiper of the gods. He worshiped the stars. He was an astrologer. And God called him to himself and sanctified him and set him apart and saved him. And he says, hey, Abraham, through you I make my covenant and I'm going to be a God to you and to your children after you. And the Bible tells us that he was preached the gospel and he believed the gospel. Look at the effect. What's the effect? Well, the effect is found in these later passages. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved. That's the message, isn't it? Isn't that the message that we hear weekly? And what happened when they received the word? Those who received the word were what? They were baptized. To receive the word of God is to receive Christ. To receive Christ is to repent of your sins, is to put your faith in him. It's, it's to repent, receive the gift of repentance. And then verse 42, what, how did that, what did that translate out into their lives? They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, the means of grace. They were wedded at that point to the 
the, these New Testament means of grace and they began to apply themselves to it. So what? So that they could be encouraged to continue on in the gospel so that they could have their lives fashioned and shaped and, 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 and brought in conformity day after day, week after week into the will of God. Same thing we do today. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. What so many of you have done, Hannah will do by God's blessing. Amen. If today we have to realign ourselves, let's do so. Let's remember what it is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's remember what it is to have the Holy Spirit come upon us and empower us. What does it look like? The text tells us. Devoting ourselves to what? The things of God to doctrine, to teaching, to prayer, to the Lord's Supper. We're only baptized once, but we can have the blessing of taking the Lord's Supper often. Let's do so. Let's pray. Now, Father, do bless us. Bless us to understand these things, Lord, even though I've just skim the surface. I pray that th- these comments would be used, Lord, rightly um, and powerfully in our lives to remember our baptism, that we would consider it its meaning. Lord, that we would understand that, that we believe in covenant baptism. We believe that you are a God that keeps his word, an everlasting covenant made, Lord, all the way back even to Abraham even affects us today as the covenant of grace continues on. As you are a God, not only to those who profess your name, but even to their children, you are a gracious God. And we are so humbled and thankful, Lord, for that. We can't even imagine what it would be like, oh Lord, to have our children excluded from these things. How we would wrench our hearts, how it would just, Lord, destroy us to know that, Lord, our children have nothing to do with you or you have nothing to do with them. And so, Lord, we are thankful. We are pleased, Lord. We are delighted and we enjoy the truth. We enjoy the truth of knowing that you are a God to them. And Lord, we pray your blessing upon our children, these children here today, that that baptism, Lord, would be made effectual by your spirit and blessing and it would be the reality of their life by your grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.